take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 25. If you uh, don't have a Bible with you, feel free to take one out of the, the pew rack in front of you and follow along with us. Acts chapter 8. We're beginning a new part of our study through Acts. Uh, we spent the first seven chapters of Acts, the, the church in the community in Jerusalem, where Jesus told the disciples in Acts 1-8 they would be his witnesses first. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, he said. Well, now we begin to look at the church to the world, going out beyond the borders of Jerusalem into those places that he continued to say in Acts 1-8, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And that picture there begins in Jerusalem, and the, the arrows are pointing to all those places, and then some, as the disciples began to take that message out. But what we see in this passage in Acts chapter 8 is, is not a decision on the part of the church to go out into the world. Not, not, they, didn't, they didn't vote on it. They didn't have a, a, a committee get together and say, hey, I think we need to do this. Uh, it, it wasn't that sort of decision. It was obedience brought about by suffering. We're going to see that as we look through this passage this morning. Suffering, in reality, is, is often the push that we need for some sort of positive change. Uh, in 2016, um, oh, uh, I forgot the name of the magazine I got this from now. It was, wasn't Inc. Entrepreneur, that's what it was. Entrepreneur Magazine had an article about the, the five biggest companies that almost didn't make it. Number one on that list was a little company known as Apple. Uh, you've probably heard of them. They, they're a big produce supplier. Um, uh, no, they make, they make phones. That's right. I, I don't, and other stuff. I'm not, I'm, well, th this is Apple. This is Samsung. I'm, we're a mixed family. Uh, Apple was nearly bankrupt for 12 years, from 1985 to 1997, they declined to the point of nearing, nearly being bankrupt. Coincidentally, that coincided with Steve Jobs leaving the company in 1985 and Steve Jobs coming back to the company in 1997. But for 12 years, they declined and almost uh, uh, declared bankruptcy. And now they have more cash, if I remember the statistic correctly, they have more cash on hand in the bank than our federal government does. Is that, does doesn't that, that rings a bell, maybe, you know, maybe I'm wrong, but I'm fairly certain. Somebody Google that, but don't trust it because it's the internet. Um, and Apple controls that. FedEx. FedEx started in 1971, was once losing $1 million per month. And at one point, they had $5,000 in the bank. That's how much cash. Now, I just told you, Apple now has more cash than the government. At one time, FedEx had $5,000 in the bank. There are some in here, probably a lot of you, that have more cash in the bank right now than FedEx did. And you're not a multi-million dollar company. Uh, the story goes, and I don't suggest this as a 
uh, any sort of financial method for getting out of bad, uh, a bad financial situation. Uh, the story goes that the uh, president of FedEx took that $5,000 and went to the blackjack table in Las Vegas and, and won 32000 So he's able to infuse a little more cash. And I, that might be apocryphal. I don't know. But Airbnb, uh, you might not be familiar with Airbnb. It's, it's, it's a fairly young company, but you can go online and you can stay in somebody's house where all over the world. You put your house on there and say, yep, you can st- I'm be gone these weeks. You can stay in my house. You get paid for it. It's kind of like a hotel, but they call it Airbnb. Um, their model, their, uh, uh, what they were selling was so undesirable when they first started out that they made custom cereal boxes for a while. That was their side business to keep the money flowing for their uh, hotel business. Custom cereal box. I don't even know what that is. I didn't bother looking it up, but they made them. Um, I don't have the disposable, disposable cash that allows me to buy a custom cereal box. Evernote is a scheduling uh, app uh, and, and program for your computer and, and note-taking, and it's just an organizational app, and they kind of own the organizational world. They were about to shut down until some overseas investor called the owner. He was days away from just locking the doors and walking away from it, and an overseas donor gave him five, uh, $500,000 to, to get it back going. Reddit, which is an online uh, a social media uh, site, when they started in 2005, they had zero visitors to their website. Not uncommon in 2005. The internet wasn't quite what it is today at that time. Zero visitors. As a matter of fact, the employees actually wrote, it's, it's a place where you can have conversations. The employees would start fake conversations on their site to try to get people just to come to their site and read these fake conversations. They weren't based on anything, but they were just trying to drive traffic. Now they have 169 million visitors, individual visitors per month. Henry Ford said, when everything seems to be going against you, remember the airplane takes off against the wind, not with it. And that's what we see in the first church this morning as we look at their move into international missions. It was against the wind. They had to have the resistance. They had to have the pressure. The scripture doesn't tell us that they weren't going to do it if the pressure didn't come. But what scripture does tell us is that the pressure forced them to do that. Suffering led to this. This church, the church is now moving from the, the community to the world. We, we talked about that. Persecution is the catalyst that gets this started. The, uh, the Acts 1-8 directive that Jesus gave to uh, his disciples to go into Jerusalem. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now is being accomplished by the church. And it is persecution that is per- pushing them out. And it begins in a very unlikely place. It begins with people who are between Jews and Gentiles on the do-we-like-them spectrum for Jews, Samaritans. We know Luke had a special place for Samaritans in his heart. He wrote about them a number of times. We know Jesus uh, had his uh, talk with the Samaritan woman, broke a bunch of taboos in order to do that. And here we see now, as the message moves out, and as Jesus had told them to go there, They are now beginning to go there, and that's what chapter 8, verses 1 through 25 uh, begins with, tells us about. 
Let's start and read there. It says, uh, and it won't be on the screen this morning. It was uh, too much to put on today. I felt like so. Follow along in your copy of Scripture. If you have, if you're using the pulpit, uh, the uh, pew Bible in front of you, then your words will agree exactly with what I have. Saul agreed with putting him to death, talking about Stephen, who we talked about last week. On that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. Devout men buried Stephen and mourned deeply over him. Saul, however, was ravaging the church. He would enter house after house, drag off men and women, and put them in prison. So those who were scattered went on their way preaching the word. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah to them. The crowds were all paying attention to what Philip said, said as they listened and saw the signs that he was performing. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. A man named Simon had previously practiced sorcery in that city and amazed the Samaritan people while claiming to be somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least of them to the greatest, and they said, This man is called the great power of God. They were attentive to him because he had amazed them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Even Simon himself believed. And after he was baptized, he followed Philip everywhere and was amazed as he observed the signs and great miracles that were being performed. When the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. After they went down there, they prayed for them so the Samaritans might receive the Holy Spirit because he had not yet come down in any of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone I lay, on, lay hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter told him, May your silver be destroyed with you, because you thought you could obtain uh, the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this matter, because your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, your heart's intent may be forgiven. For I see you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by wickedness. Pray to the Lord for me, Simon replied, so that nothing you have said may happen to me. So after they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they traveled back to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. We're going to see a few things this morning about the gospel. And, and while we keep in mind this, this, this overview image of the, the gospel going out as Jesus has given the directive for it to do, we need to look at what's going on in the passage. There, there are a couple of things going on. It is, it, it, the, the gospel message is going out to places it has not been before. Uh, the gospel is uh, doing exactly what Jesus said it would do. But this story is kind of a... a, a not difficult, but you just, you read it and you wonder, well, I did. Okay, what's this for me? Okay, Simon's a magician. He, he had some issues. What, where, where's, the, where's the message for us? What was, what was Luke's intent when he wrote this? And that's what we have to get to. Well, I think we see a number of things here about the gospel. 
We see it spreading. We see persecution causing that spreading, and we're not going to get too far away from that message. But the passage here is less about the persecution. That's only three verses. And more about the gospel's work in the lives of Samaria, uh, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. First thing we see about the gospel here, we see in verses 1 through 4, we see that the gospel is powerful in persecution. The, 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 the gospel is powerful into persecution. I really struggled with the, uh, the correct preposition to put in that sentence because in persecution, yeah, yeah, the gospel's powerful while it's going on, but, but I, I tried to come up with a, some way, and I failed, some way to explain in, a, in one word that the, the gospel is powerful intentionally toward persecution. The, the gospel increases its ability the harder it gets to share it. The, the power is not, the gospel is not diminished when there's persecution and pushback against the gospel. In fact, what we see worldwide over and over and over right up to today is that where the gospel is most persecuted and suppressed is where it is now currently growing most quickly. So the gospel is almost attracted to persecution. And that's the message that we see here that is powerful in persecution. If we go back through the book of Acts all the way up to where we are now, we see that the gospel was powerful from when Peter and John just received the warning. And then we see that they preached the gospel and thousands got saved. And then we have all the apostles before the Sanhedrin and in court. And they are whipped, they're flogged. For it. They are beaten for the gospel and they go out rejoicing that they could suffer for the, for the gospel the way Jesus did or, or, or they, no, they would, could suffer for the gospel for Jesus, bear the stripes on their back as well and they preach the message and thousands got saved and we see that uh, then when the beating didn't work it was murder. They killed Stephen for sharing the gospel and when, they, when he was killed what do we see? We see uh, him sharing the message and some believing the message that he shares. And then we get to verse 1 of chapter 8 and we see uh, widespread imprisonment for the gospel. And what do they do? They share the gospel. So the gospel flourishes in persecution. Persecution and suffering is, is fertilizer and water to the seed of the gospel that sees it grow and present, uh, produce a harvest like we cannot believe, like we will not see if it lies on calm, untested, unbroken, unwatered, unfertilized ground. So from warning to beatings to murder to widespread imprisonment, the gospel is powerful in persecution. And as we see in this passage, the, the severe persecution broke out. We, we see a little bit more about Saul and what his hand is in it, or how, how his hand is in it. We see in verse 2 that devout men buried Stephen and they mourned him deeply, which was a sin for Jews to do because they were burying a heretic. You could bury them, but you couldn't mourn them publicly. But they did because they knew what had been lost. 
Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women. Verse 4, so those who were scattered went on their way preaching the word. They were run out of their homes for the gospel. And they were willing to remain faithful and obedient even as they lost nearly everything. Not their lives yet, but they lost their homes, their livelihood. And they had to move to another city, to another country, practically, because of their faithful gospel witness. And as they moved, as they went, they went on their way preaching the word. The gospel is powerful in persecution. That's the first thing we see here. But we see also that the gospel is for the undesirables in verses 5 through 8. Philip went down to a city in Samaria. Now, if you know your geography, you know that Samaria is north of Jerusalem. Yet everything is down from Jerusalem in the Bible because Jerusalem's on a hill. And you go down to everything else, wherever you go. So he went down to Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah to them. The crowds were all paying attention to what he said. The Samaritans. Philip went to Samaria. The, the rabbis of the day said, if you eat with Jew, if, Jew, if you eat with a Samaritan, you might as well eat pork. That's how unclean they considered the Samaritans. Brief history of the Samaritans. I've probably talked to, uh, about it before, but I'll uh, remind you. In 722 B.C., the northern kingdom of Israel, Israel got split. David was king of a, combined, a united kingdom. Solomon was, a king, was a king of a combined kingdom. And then when Solomon's sons took over, the kingdom split. Judah in the south, Israel in the north. In 722 B.C., the country of Assyria came in, defeated Samaria, which was the, the capital city of uh, Israel, and now you kind of hear where we get the word term Samaritan from, defeated the capital city, deported nearly everybody, and while there, they, uh, they took husbands, wives of Assyrians and Jews, and they intermixed uh, in their marriages. Similar thing happened to the southern kingdom, Judah. Babylon comes in in 586 B.C., takes everybody or most everybody away to Babylon. The difference is they did not intermarry. So when they came home, they were still, quote, pure. The Samaritans were not. Because they had already worshipped, one thing we have to understand about the history here is when they split the kingdom, Jerusalem and the temple were in the southern kingdom of Judah, Samaria had to basically invent their own religion in order to make things work uh, theologically for themselves. It didn't. If you were coming on Wednesday nights to our Bible study about Amos, you'd already heard all this. You'd have known about it because Amos was talking to these folks about it. He, uh, so they, they had to invent their own religion. So not only are they impure half-breeds, according to the Jews, but they're also heretics because they worship on the wrong mountain. They don't expect the same things. And now Philip is going to those Samaritans. Well, that's scandalous right there, but we need to understand something about Philip. This is not the Apostle Philip. This is uh, the, the servant Philip. 
he is going to these people that would not have been seen as worth saving or even savable. They were a lost cause as far as the Jews were concerned. And here's Philip. What did I call Stephen last week? The Benevolence Committee's assistant. Well, here's one more of the Benevolence Committee's assistants. Not an apostle, not a pastor, not an elder. The helper. And he is boldly preaching the gospel to the group of undesirables. They were just above Gentiles, but not much. Church, we have undesirables in our midst. Now, some of us are too polite to call them that out loud. But that's what we think of certain people, certain types of people, certain communities or neighborhoods in our towns, certain groups of people that look a particular way or act a particular way. And we say, well, they're probably not even savable. And yet what the gospel tells us here is that the gospel is for everyone. There are no undesirables in God's kingdom. God desires them all to be saved. And what do we see? They hear the message. They, they see what Philip is doing. They were all paying attention to Philip as they listened. And verse 8, there was great joy in that city. They responded to the message. Can I get anybody to agree with me that when you are known to be an outcast, Whatever the group is that you're, you are an outcast of, when you are not right for those people, when you are not uh, looked upon highly by certain folks, but then finally you are accepted by those people, there's joy, right? Will anybody agree with me on that? Well, let's imagine the joy of the people who said, we can't even eat with you Jews. And we are now hearing the gospel of salvation. We are hearing the Jesus that, oh, that's right, Jews, y'all rejected. And we get to receive that. Imagine their joy. One more thing about Philip. Not only was he the Benevolence Committee's assistant, he was a Hellenistic Jew. You had Jews in the hierarchy you had the Hellenistic Jews, the Greek-speaking Jews, and then mm, you had the Samaritans and the Gentiles, and then dogs and pigs. But they were close, right? Real close. And here is an outcast, Philip, a Hellenistic Jew, a less than, going to the even lesser thans and saying, let me tell you about the gospel that makes us all more than. Let me tell you about the Jesus that does not look at our skin color, does not look at our race, does not look at our ethnicity, does not look at where we grow up, grew up, does not look at our family line, does not look at what we've done other than to say there is nothing in your past that keeps me from loving you and saving you. And what does the Bible say? There was great joy in that city. Because that's what happens when the gospel goes to the undesirables. But not only was the gospel for the undesirables, verses 9 through 11, the gospel is for the absolute worst. Here we have Simon the magician, who was, had previously practiced sorcery in that city. He amazed the Samaritan people 
the Bible tells us he was a, a sorcerer, a magician. I probably consider him more of a snake oil salesman. He was uh, a fraud. He, he, there, there's, there is demonic activity. There is the ability for the spirit world to deceive us. I believe that uh, uh, the, 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 uh, the demons and their influence but magic isn't real. We saw a video uh, here recently uh, from something called Magic for the People. Is that what it's called, Jordan? Where they convinced a guy, he was invi- two guys, that he was invisible. You really need to watch that video if you can find it. These two guys were absolutely, because the whole crowd was in on it. He was absolute, they were absolutely convinced they were invisible. Why? Because they believed in magic. And everything around them told them that it was real. But it wasn't. They weren't invisible. Everybody knew they weren't invisible. But because enough people told them that they were, and they were gullible to believe that there's something, uh, that, that a person can do that sort of thing, they were freaking out. It's hilarious, if it weren't so sad, that they could be convinced of that. Because magicians are just entertaining frauds. That's all they are. And here's Simon, who went around claiming to be somebody great, self-aggrandizement, telling everybody, I am wonderful, and they paid attention to him, and he allowed him to be, himself to be seen as a divine being. The Bible says this man is called the great power of God. He's not God, but he's the power of God on earth. Look at all these wonderful things he can do. He can pick the card out and, and rab it out of his hat. And, oh, look, where'd that, where'd that handkerchief come from? Oh, no. You know, that's, he, he, that's the kind of thing he was doing. And it's, the Bible says he believed and was baptized. The gospel was for Simon the magician. The gospel for, was for someone who had used at best fraudulent activities, at worst demonic manifestation in order to deceive people away from the one true God, taking on in some sense the name of God, and the gospel was for him. Do I have anybody in here who has used demonic activity in order to make uh, fraudulent cash off of unsuspecting people. You don't have to raise your hand. That's kind of specific. Probably would only be one or two. The gospel's for you. There is nothing that the gospel cannot forgive. There is nothing that the gospel cannot overcome. He believed and he was baptized, Scripture says. And then he followed Philip around everywhere. He was amazed as he observed the signs and the the great miracles that Philip was performing. And that should kind of give us a hint as to what's coming later. But we don't want to get ahead of ourselves now, do we? So the gospel is for everyone, the undesirables. The gospel is for the absolute worst. But verses 14 through 19, specifically this passage is telling us that the gospel is not a money-making scheme. There are some TV preachers that need to hear this. The gospel is not a money, excuse me, not a money-making scheme. Peter and John show up uh, from Jerusalem. They come up. They hear about what's going on in Samaria. You know that's going to be some interest, uh, have some interest to the Jews in the church. They come up and they endorse Philip's work. 
It does not appear that they were coming to make sure Philip was doing it right. It does not appear that they were coming up to uh, uh, redirect him in any way. It was the church in Jerusalem, the mother church, the, the sending church, has now come and said, guys, this is exactly what the gospel is supposed to do. That's why Peter and John show up in Samaria. This is this, this Holy Spirit filling, it says, is, was what they did was they came up and they laid hands because they had not yet received the Holy Spirit. Now, Michael, what does that mean? Isn't this some sort of second filling of the Holy Spirit? Well, clearly it's not a second filling because it says they hadn't received the Holy Spirit yet. Well, Michael, then do we not receive the Spirit at, at salvation because that's what we as Baptists teach and preach, and that's what we've, we've been told to believe. Is that not what the Bible says? That is, as a matter of fact, exactly what the Bible says. Over and over and over and over throughout Acts, you believe, and the Holy Spirit comes every time except for three. There are three times in Acts, three exceptions to the rule, when that doesn't work out right. Later on, it's going to uh, be that way with... Um, Paul and the disciples of John the Baptist that had spread out after John the Baptist was killed, uh, and then when um, Ananias laid his hands on Paul, Paul got saved on the road to Damascus, and he got the Holy Spirit later on when uh, Ananias laid hands on him. What's going on here, Michael? What's going on here? is that new ground is being broken. Christianity, the gospel, is, is pushing into new lands. It's not that, wait, wait, this hasn't been done before, is what, God is, is what the people would say. And God is saying, you're right, I know, this is different from how it's happened, but let me show you vividly that this is exactly what I want to happen. So the Samaritans are getting saved. That's not supposed to happen. They're uh, half-breed heretics. And God sends Peter and John up there. They lay hands, and the visible sign of the Holy Spirit comes on them, uh, coming on them shows up, and everybody goes, well, never mind. God's in this. We didn't have to, uh, we didn't have to assume maybe, or the, sure, the Holy Spirit comes when they're saved. Because we look back at Acts 2, 38, I believe, when the Holy Spirit came and they were in the upper room, or in that room, that immediately they, they received the Spirit and it was done, it was over. Here, there's a wait because God needs to show them, yes, I am in this new thing that's happening. Paul being saved, Saul being saved on the road to Damascus and, and being a persecutor of the church, God needed to show up and tell the people, the church, yes, I did this. John the Baptist's disciples later on, when they hear the, 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 the message fully explained of Jesus Christ, they needed to see, yes, God did this. So this filling is a confirmation and affirmation of new ground being broken. And Simon sees this, and Simon wants it. I didn't know getting saved could get me that. That looks like something I could have made a lot of money off of last week if I had only known how to do it. So he says, hey, can I buy this from you? Can I get this power so that when I lay hands on people, they do all these things that they did? We don't know what they did, but there was some obvious external manifestation of the Holy Spirit, probably speaking in tongues as has happened before and will happen again later on. 
He wants that, and he wants to buy it. In reality, Simon wants the perks of being a Christian without the commitment. He wants to use the gospel for his own purposes. Now, I mentioned TV preachers that will do that as well. We'll say, they'll say, send me your faith seed of $1,500 and God will bless you and they'll tell you all sorts of things and they are using the gospel for their own purposes and that is a, a probably a, uh, an extreme example. But folks, very few of us are exempt from using the gospel for our own purposes. I want to use the gospel so I can commit this sin as much as I want to but still be forgiven of it. Uh oh. I want the gospel to make me look good so I can get elected. Uh oh. I want the gospel to, to make me feel better about myself, but I don't really have to change. Uh oh. We use the gospel the same way. It may not be for money making, but we use it in ways that it was never intended. We use it to build ourselves up, lift ourselves up, make ourselves appear more than we actually are. We call it church attendance. We call it tithing. Whatever it is, oh, I'm a, I attend, I tithe, I do this. We are using the gospel for our own selfish purposes. And that's what Luke is getting us to understand that the gospel is not for. Fifth thing we see here about the gospel it's powerful in persecution. It's for the undesirables. It's for the worst. It's not a money-making scheme. It's not for selfishness. And fifthly, it must be received in faith. Peter told him, may your silver, verse 20, Peter told him, may your silver be destroyed with you. Literally, Peter tells Simon to hell with you and your money. It's exactly what he tells him. Because that's where you're both going. Not what a saved person would expect to hear, is it? I mean, it's kind of it's kind of a tough comment here. This this curse, and that's what he's doing. You and your silver be destroyed to perdition, to hell with your silver and you, because you thought you could buy this gift of God with money. That does not lead us to believe that Simon is saved. There, there are a number of schools of thought on this passage. Is he, is he not? I'm going to lean toward the no, because this is strong language for Peter. One of the reasons we think that uh, Simon was just reacting for himself was back up in the passage. It doesn't say what he believed. It says Simon believed. It, it says that the others, the other people in uh, uh, the city in Samaria, the crowds were all paying attention to what, to what um, Philip said as they listened, uh, and there was great joy. They were paying attention. They believed what he said. They were attentive to him, verse 12, when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news, the object there being the good news that they really believed. Simon just believed. We kind of get the sense that Simon believed in magic. And then you read on and it says that he had been following them around. It's, it's kind of like a, a rock star groupie 
almost. He was infatuated with the signs and wonders that Philip could perform. He was drooling over those. Man, I thought I was something. This Philip guy, he's got the key. I can make millions off of this. And Peter tells him, you and your money will be destroyed. As a matter of fact, he says, you have no part or share in this matter because your heart is not right before God. Verse 23, for I see you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by wickedness. Or another way to put that is bound in iniquity and bitterly envious. He is a reprehensible person. These are not words for, for someone who has trusted Christ. And Peter had some inside knowledge on this. And Peter tells him in verse 22, Therefore repent of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible your heart's intent may be forgiven. I don't believe Peter thought it was impossible that he could be forgiven. I believe he thought it was entirely possible. I believe he thought it was difficult for Simon to pray that prayer. And then we see in verse 24, the next, the sixth thing, the gospel must result in change. Verse 24, Pray to the Lord for me, Simon replied, so that nothing you have said may happen to me. That is the most non-repentance, non-repentant repentance you may ever read in the Bible. Repent, Simon. Oh, you do it for me. You repent for me. You pray that for me. You. It's very, very dismissive. And he does not repent. We have no indication that he did. We see no true change in Simon the magician. We see outward appearances, right? He, he believed. He was even baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere. He looks like a good Christian. He's in church every Sunday. But look at the, bound, the iniquity in which he has bound and the bitterness that overflows and, and poisons not just himself but probably other people around him. There's no real evidence of salvation. There's a, there are a few outward appearances, but what is in the heart flowed out. And Peter tells him, your heart is not right for God. And he dismisses Peter's demand to repent. We see no repentance from, from Simon. Folks, the gospel must result in change. If you claim Jesus then you must be different than you were before you claimed Jesus. You won't be perfect today, tomorrow, or any day until the second that you die. Then you'll be perfect. But you must be working toward sanctification, toward holiness. And if your life is a pit of poisoned bitterness and bound wickedness, then we need you you need you to examine your life and say, have I trusted Christ as my Savior? Because salvation, the gospel, will result in change. Then we look at verse 25, and we're kind of back on track with our title here. We see at the beginning, it's uh, the uh, obedience from uh, suffering. 
And then we see in verse 25, it continues to spread. It started in this one town, but on the way home, Peter, John, maybe Philip goes back to Jerusalem now, probably not being a a Hellenistic Jew rather than a, a Hebraic Jew. He probably stayed in Samaria. Peter and John go back on the way. People who would not have associated with Samaritans before now. Peter, who's going to be called out for his hypocrisy and who he would eat with later on by Paul in Galatians. If you were with us for our Galatians study, you remember that. Peter and John go home, and on the way home through Samaria, in verse 25, they traveled back to Jerusalem preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. Gospel acceptance led to gospel proclamation. When Peter and John saw the gospel will go to these Samaritan towns, and the Samaritans will believe. And not only will the Samaritans believe and be baptized just like we were, but the Holy Spirit made a point to come on them at a specific moment in time when we were there to see it, not distribute it, but to see it. So we can in no way doubt that this gospel is for at least the Samaritans. Gentiles are coming later, but at least the Samaritans. So on their way home, they may have been quiet about it going up to wherever they went to in Samaria, but on the way home to Jerusalem, they're telling every Samaritan town they go through about this gospel, about this Jesus that can save, yes, even you just above pig people, Samaritans, even you can be saved. Let me tell you about Simon the Magician. Even he could have been saved if he had repented. See, the rejection of Simon did not bring about a resignation from the call to share the gospel. Persecution won't slow him down. Rejection won't slow him down because the gospel is going to the world and God is going to use his church to do it. Let me ask you this morning, church, where will your suffering lead you? Will your suffering lead you to press into Jesus and be even more confident in his provision? I can be obedient to what he said even in my suffering because I know he will take care of me. He will provide. Will your suffering lead you to greater obedience even with results beyond what you expected because they had been obedient in Jerusalem. They had been warned and they had been flogged and now Stephen had been killed and they were still sharing the gospel in Jerusalem. They were still obedient. But that suffering, that persecution, pushed their obedience further than they thought they could have gone. And then when they did, they saw things they probably never thought they'd ever see. Will you let your suffering lead you to greater obedience? Will you love others because of your suffering or will it embitter you will it will you be poisoned by bitterness and bound by wickedness to the point of uncontrolled hatred and anger will it lead you I don't know what Simon may have suffered in his past it doesn't say he suffered anything he doesn't have to have suffered anything but he suffered currently in this story Because of the bound iniquity in him and the bitterness that poisoned him, he was suffering and he rejected the one that could free him from that. Will you let your suffering lead you 
to Jesus instead of away from him? How then will you respond to the gospel? This gospel that grows in persecution, this gospel that's for everyone, this gospel that is for you. Will you be like the Samaritans that Philip preached to? And will you accept it with joy? Thank you for explaining this gospel to me, or will it anger you? Don't you dare tell me I'm not saved. Well, Peter had no problem telling Simon that his heart was dark and he was not after God. And he knew that by his actions and by his words, not by his appearance. Will you see the gospel, see salvation as only a, a useful personal tool, tool a, a get-out-of-hell-free card, an ability to do what you want to and be forgiven for it? Will you respond to the gospel and, as Simon did, see no need for your repentance? Let me tell you this morning how you need to respond to the gospel. Let it change you. Let it remove the bitterness and wickedness. Whether you've accepted Christ before or not, he can still remove the bitterness and the wickedness. Let the gospel lead you to speak the word of the Lord, as it says in verse 25, as you travel wherever it is you're going. Let the gospel lead you. Let the gospel allow you to respond to suffering with obedience. Why could they do that? Because they knew the truth of the gospel, that they were saved, that he was in control, that he had told them to go, so we will go, even if it was suffering that pushed us out. We're still going to go, and as we go, we'll share the gospel this morning. How will you respond to the gospel? The gospel tells us that, we are, that, that God is holy and just, that God will judge sin, and in judging sin, he will judge us because we are willfully sinful and fallen and our destiny is everlasting judgment and torment because of our sinfulness, because of his judgment on sin. And there is no way on our end that we can fix that. But God sent Jesus, his one and only son, to die on the cross for our sins. He was perfect. He did not deserve death. He did not deserve punishment. But he took them both, which were both ours, our place and our sin on the cross. And he died for everyone. He died for the Jews. He died for the Samaritans. He died for the Gentiles. He, he died for Simon the magician. He, he died for, for Joe the drug dealer. He, he, he died for Penelope the hooker. He died for anybody you can think of, Jack the politician. He died for all of them. He died for Abdul the terrorist. He died for... Uh, uh, Timothy McVeigh, the terrorist. He died for any of them and all of them. So that means this morning, he died for you. And you can accept that salvation by doing what Peter told Simon to do. Repent of your sin. Place your faith in Jesus Christ for salvation by believing in him. And then turn from your life. Live for him. Turn from your way to his way. Turn from your, if we're going to keep Simon in mind, turn from your self-aggrandizing, self-aggrandizing magic to the Holy Spirit who has true power and can save you. Will you do that this morning? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your provision of salvation. Thank you for the gospel that saves us and continues to save us 
and sanctifies us, Lord, and that makes us the promise that we will overcome suffering and persecution and that the gospel will go out. The gospel will be spread. The gospel will be more powerful tomorrow than it is today. Or at least the gospel will be uh, not any more powerful. That doesn't work. But Lord, you know, you know what I mean. That it will be uh, used mightily in persecution where we may sit on it if we're comfortable. God, I pray that we would not do that. I pray this morning that for the lost who, who hear the gospel call and they will not turn away from it, they will not misuse it or ignore it, but God, they will come to Jesus Christ for salvation today. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So what is your obedience from salvation this morning? Maybe you need to accept Christ. You need to be baptized. You've accepted Christ, but you need to be baptized. You want to lead a life of holiness. You need to repent of some bitterness and some anger. You need to lead a life of holiness, recommit, return to him, be used according to his purpose, join our church, whatever it is this morning that God's leading you to do, however you need to respond to his gospel this morning, whether you've been saved or not, you stand with us, sing, do business with God as he leads you today.